and he rides into Jerusalem. Now there's a crowd that's waiting for him, if you remember, and they're waving palm branches, and they're yelling what? Does anyone remember? Hosanna, Hosanna. What's all of that about? Are they worshiping King Jesus? Kind of. Kind of. Actually, what it's about is back before Jesus, there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolution, where the Jewish people had, uh, under, under, under the Maccabeans was a family, had, had one of the, the one that they kind of led the most, his name was the Hammer. That was his nickname, the Hammer, kind of like WWE type guy, right, in, the, in this history. And they remember this guy because he led this revolution where they, where they kind of overthrew uh, Rome for a moment, and, and, and Israel had their freedom again. And one of the symbols of that was a palm branch. And, the, and another one was, was this, they would, they would call out Hosanna. It wasn't worship to God necessarily to them. It was very political. It, was, it represented, we want revolution. So here's Jesus entering in for the last time. And there's a small group of people who are believing in Jesus, believing something about Jesus, but they have a very strict expectation of who they want jesus to be they want him to be the king who's coming to jerusalem to lead the people in revolt against rome to to bring freedom from rome to usher in a new israel kingdom the a better than it has ever been and that's their belief system and jesus is coming in and they're all excited about it it's palm sunday soon after it they're going to realize jesus isn't who they wanted him to be and they're going to change their chance to crucify him, crucify him. So Palm Sunday really is wrapped around this singular question. Who, who is this King Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? Who is this King Jesus? Well, today we've been teaching through the book of John and we're going to continue on. John chapter 12 is the triumphal entry. That's Palm Sunday. We're still in chapter 5, right? We're, we're going to look today at a time when Jesus is in Jerusalem, very similar, but it's the first half of his ministry, towards the beginning of his ministry. Last, You guys can turn to John chapter 5, and we're going to be there in just a second, but just to set it up, uh, last week we saw that Jesus enters in, it's, it's, it's during one of the feasts, it doesn't tell us which one, it's probably either Passover or Pentecost or, or Sukkot, right? The, the, it's the Feast of Weeks or Tabernac or Booths or Tabernacles, right? Um, it's probably not Passover, that's already happened, maybe it's Pentecost, maybe it's Sukkot, we don't know. But Jesus is there and he enters in and he goes to a specific place during this feast, he goes to a place called the Pool of Bethesda, right? Which means House of Mercy. It's this pool outside of the Sheep Gate, it says. And he meets there this cripple. All of, in, in that day, around this pool, for whatever reason, we're going to look at that in a moment, but there is a reason. Uh, these, these, these basically homeless people who, who are crippled or lame or broken, they, they all gather around this pool, right? It'd be like, think about you go down to Skid Row, L.A., and they go to a government building, and inside there's, 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 there's people with suits, and they're doing work. But outside, what do you find? You find gatherings of, uh, and, and encampments of a lot of homeless people, a lot of people with psychological problems or physical problems or just life problems, right? And, the, and, and that's what you see at the Pool of Bethesda. We're going to look at why is that. And Jesus meets this guy there. He's, he can't walk. He's paralyzed. And, and he asks him, do you want to get better, Right? And the guy comes up with excuses, and, and then Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
So, so all of a sudden, he feels the strength come in his legs, not because of his faith, but because Jesus heals him, just straight out heals him right there. It was God's plan for this guy on that day to be healed. Jesus heals him. He gets up, he takes his bed mat, and he walks. As he's walking, the Pharisees come along, and they rebuke him. Because they have a rule on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to move from one house to another. And they, they interpret it like this. He's carrying his bed mat. He's carrying his furniture. He's moving on the Sabbath. And they question him about it. Why, are you, why did you pick up your mat and walk? You're not allowed to do that, in essence. And he says, the guy who healed me, get this, the guy who healed me said, pick up my mat and walk. What, what would your response be? You got healed? That's not their response. They go, who, who is this guy? And, the, and he goes, I don't even know his name. He didn't even take the time to get to know his name, the guy who healed him, right? Jesus finds him later, finds him in the temple, and he goes, look, you're, you're, you're healed. That's great, but let me take it a little step further. You're physically healed, but you still have some issues. You need to deal with your sin. You need more than a physical healing. There's more to your issues than just a physical healing. Well, the guy doesn't get it, and he walks away from the from the moment un, really unchanged where he needed to be changed most which is in his heart but 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 it, it creates this tension because he go he finds out it's jesus instead of worshiping jesus he goes and gets the authorities and he goes it was jesus jesus did it he basically is telling on jesus right what a schmuck right this guy and 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 and, and so the pharisees come up to jesus and they basically question him about him working on the sabbath and telling this guy to work on the Sabbath. And, and, and that's where we find today's story in entrance. So let's look in uh, John chapter 5. We'll pick it up starting in verse 16. In essence, what you're going to see, remember we, the, the question of Palm Sunday is this. Who, if Jesus is king, what does that mean? What does that mean to you if you acknowledge that Jesus is king? Or you could even wrap it into this because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is that is that just um, is that only an issue on way back on Palm Sunday or is that a big question today? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And if Jesus is king, what does that mean for us? That's that's a relevant question today. And here's what we're going to see before Palm Sunday. It was already becoming a relevant question. They were already arguing and and in this tension of this. It really breaks down to this. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? You, you guys ever, ever, ever been in the tension like that of who's in charge? Right? You, maybe you have a sibling and your parents went away, you know, on vacation or even just out to dinner. And then what's the fights over? Who's in charge? Who gets to say what we do, right? Who's in charge? You ever, remember when you, remember when you were a student, right? And, and, and you walk into school and you don't see your normal teacher. It's a substitute teacher. And now there's a struggle all day. Who's in charge? Right? Maybe you go to work and you don't respect your boss. Or you, or you don't respect your coworkers. Who's in charge? Or maybe you go to church, Right? And you don't agree with maybe something that, 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 that the leaders, the eldership is, are, are making. Who's in charge? It's a big question, right? Who's in charge? Or even this, in your life, who's in charge? We like to be in charge, don't we? And so they're confronted with this tension. And it looks like this. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. 
This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Here's an interesting tension. So here you have these Jewish people, right? They're the leaders, and the tension's over who's in charge, right? Jesus tells this guy to, to he basically heals this guy, which, which, which takes work, I imagine. I mean, I can't do it, but, but when you're Jesus, it's an act of work to heal this guy, and that's a tension point. And then he tells this guy, pick up your mat and walk, and that falls very clearly. They have 29 rules that define in the, the Jewish people. These aren't in the Bible. The, basically, the Jewish people look like this. Moses gave us the law. That was his job. It's our job to interpret the law. It's your job to follow the law. That's the way they looked at it. They looked like they're in charge of interpreting the law, and they came up with 29, 29 kind of rules of what it means to work and that you can't do on the Sabbath, and moving is one of those 29 rules. And, and, and so the, the tension is this. Jesus has done some work that he shouldn't have been doing on the Sabbath. When they correct him, what are they doing? They're working. They think, this is my job to tell you, but they don't see that, right? In essence, they're going to Jesus. They're saying, look, Jesus, you're offending God by doing work on the Sabbath. Jesus could have very easily go, no, you're offending God by doing work on the Sabbath. You're telling me what to do. That's your work. We're both working, but Jesus makes a clear point. He says, no, I'm not offending God. I'm actually doing what my father showed me to do. How do they respond to that? This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his, him, God his own father, making himself equal with God. Right? These guys are now, want to ki- they've, they've gone to wanting to correct Jesus, to wanting to kill him, and that tension will remain all the way till Palm Sunday when he enters in, and Good Friday when they crucify him, and now when people reject him. So let's look a little bit about what this looks like. The first thing is this. There's some tension building up in this story, and it's over who's in control. We probably have this tension in our own life. Do you have, are you, are, is anyone in here perfectly able to surrender your life and say, no, God is in control. I never try to become a control freak. No, we all, we all struggle in this story. Don't, don't think the Pharisees are the ones that, that are the only ones that need teaching in this story. This is for us, right? But the tension is this. What does it mean to do God's work? Who, which one is doing God's work? They think they're doing God's work by correcting Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm doing God's work by doing God's work, right? Who's right? Who's in charge? Here's one litmus test that you can kind of get an idea of. How do you know if you're doing God's work? How do you know if what you're doing is God's work? We all have good ideas, right? Even if you want to be good, there's, there's a difference between doing good things and doing God things. How do you know the difference? How do you, how do you justify these the Pharisees are doing, they think they're doing God's work. Jesus believes he's doing God's work. And in fact, if you're put up against Jesus, you're always wrong, right? So Jesus is doing good work. But how do you know? Here's one way. God will use shepherds, not sheriffs. God loves to use shepherds, not sheriffs. In the Bible, the language about God's servants is always shepherd language, not sheriff language. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and he points out the Pharisees are being bad shepherds. They're not being good shepherds. 
That's the tension. That's why they don't like Jesus. What's one of the reasons they don't? Because he's calling them out. You're being shepherds. What's the difference? A sheriff thinks that the rules are what's most important. A sheriff will, will, will think that the rules are what's most important. A shepherd will think that people are what's most important. A shepherd cares more about the people than anything else. A sheriff cares more about the rules than anything else. Rules come into play because a good shepherd, like a good parent, has to have some rules, right? That's true. So it's not that the rules don't matter, but, but it's a heart issue. It's what matters most. And, and if you look in this story, it's interesting because Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he goes to this specific place. It's outside of the Sheep Gate. It's called the Pool of Bethesda, right? This is very significant, and here's why. The, there's this pool, right? It's about, the, they've excavated it. It's about the size of a football field. It's huge. It's 20 feet deep on its deepest thing. And what it is, it's a public bath. It's a public pool for bathing, right? And there was, a, there was a section that was for the guys, and there was a section that was for the girls, and it was blocked off by a colonnade. That's why it'll tell you in the text there was five colonnades in this section, right? So there's this pool. Why is that significant? Here's why. It is not at all a Jewish thing to have a pool right there by your temple. Not at all. It's a very Greek thing to have a pool by your, like a public bathing pool. How does this happen? If you know your world history, a couple hundred years, several hundred years before Jesus, there was a great uh, Greek empire, right? And it it was led by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world at that time. And he had a very, uh, uh, a very distinct program that he installed, which was called Hellenization. You guys ever heard about that in, in, in world history? Hellenization, right? The Greeks believed that, that, their, that their progenitor was, was the Greek goddess, the, the Greek god Helen from Troy, and that's where they came from. So another name for the Greeks was the Hellens, right? And so they tried to, they tried to Hellenize the world. And what that meant to them was they believed that everybody who was not Greek was, in essence, a barbarian. That's the language they use. They're barbarians. We're going to go and conquer them, and we're going to make the barbarians into Greeks. We're going to Hellenize them. We're going to bring Greek culture everywhere. We're going to fix the world with Greekness. That's the way that they viewed their, their, their mission, right? And, and at Jesus' time, here we have this pool. It was the influence of Hellenization in Jerusalem. How do you think the Jewish leaders viewed that pool? You think it was a great holy place? No, it was a place that they would have been disgusted by. It was a place that didn't fit in their land. Remember, they want revolution. They want everything Greek, everything Rome. Get out. We want our own kingdom. They did not like this pool. Not only that, there was this, we see in the story, there was this kind of Greek mythology, this kind of urban legend. This is why all of the homeless people and the broken people would, would meet there. They believed that an angel would come down at certain times and stir the pool. And the first person who would get in would get magically healed. Is that Jewish thought? No, that is very pagan ideology. That is a very pagan thought in this pagan pool. So, so here you have... These, 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 all these homeless people at this place that would have been shunned by the, is, by, the, by the Jewish people, right? And where does Jesus show up? Jesus shows up where no one else would. Jesus shows up in a broken place where the people who have been marginalized by society, we, we love to do that, right? It, I, I know there's a homeless issue, just don't be in my neighborhood. 
That's where you belong. We belong over here. You stay over here. That's what's going on. Where does Jesus go? He goes right there. He goes right there. And he heals this guy. The guy gets up and he walks. You have to wonder, how come the, if, 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 if the Jewish leaders are, such, are, are so concerned with God's work, how come they never went there and helped? How come they avoided those people? How come the first interaction that this guy has with this, 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 this formerly broken person is to rebuke him? How come he waits till he's healed and, and, he, and he points out, you know, you just got healed? Yeah, but you're breaking the law. Imagine this. Imagine at Little Company Mary today, this story happens. It breaks out. Somebody had terminal illness. They were going to die. And, and, some, and, and a group from this church went and prayed for them. And they got healed. And the doctor said, it's a miracle. You got healed. You can go home. And the guy goes out of the hospital. Imagine how he's feeling, right? And he, and he walks out of the hospital. And he's walking across the street. And then, and he gets busted for jaywalking. How crazy is that? That's what happens in this story. That's how crazy this is. But these people are thinking more like sheriffs than like shepherds. That's the issue. But admittedly, here, here's, here's an issue when it's dealing with control. It is hard to submit to authority. It's hard to submit to authority. We have this thing called human nature, also known as sin nature. I don't know if you have it. Well, I do know if you have it. I don't know if you recognize that you have it. But everyone else around you can recognize that you have it, right? And, and I have it. And one of the things that happens is it's hard to submit to authority, right? That's, why, that's why, 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 why at some point your kids are growing up and they butt heads with their parents. It's hard to submit to authority. That's why when a substitute teacher comes, we don't just act like perfect angels. It's hard to submit to authority. That's why when your boss tells you to do something you don't agree with, you, you, you wait till he leaves and then you talk about him behind his back. It's hard to submit to authority, right? That's why when we don't agree with what the government is doing, we, we, we complain and we, do, we, don't, we don't just do our own thing. It's hard to submit to authority, right? These people are having an issue with submitting to authority, and specifically this. If Jesus is in charge, that's what they're going to have to come to realize. If Jesus is in charge, then we're not. Jesus is in charge, we're not. They don't like that. They believe they're in charge. Remember, Moses made the law, we interpret the law, we enforce the law, you follow the law. We're in charge. That's how they feel. They're entitled. That's how the Jewish people feel. Now Jesus is coming and questioning this. They say Jesus is working on the Sabbath and therefore dis disobeying God. Now Jesus is saying, no, I'm not disobeying God. I am doing what God wants me to do. Who's in charge? If they're the authority, then who's, who's disobeying authority? Then Jesus is. But that's not the way that it should be, right? Jesus is in charge. He is the authority, and they're the ones disobeying God really questioning God. They don't see that Jesus is God. So it's hard to submit to authority. And then lastly, we see that following Jesus means he's in charge. Following Jesus always means he's in charge, right? And they have to choose. Why did they kill Jesus on Good Friday? You know, ever, ever think of that question? Why did they kill Jesus? Because he didn't leave them any other option. Jesus did not leave them any other option. Well, he actually, he did. He left him two options. Either follow him and worship him or crucify him. 
You're either going to follow him or crucify him. Those who in the town wanted to say, oh, no, he's just a good guy. He's here to do, make good. No, all of a sudden, they want to crucify him because he realized he doesn't leave that option. He doesn't get to just be a good guy. Jesus is not a good person. Jesus is not merely a good person. He's either way more than that, or he's way less than that. He's either way more than that, and he is who he says he is, which is, is, is the one who's in charge, the king, the one that they should be obeying. Or, he's crazy. He's psychological. He needs to be at the pool of Bethesda. You know, he needs to be homeless because he he's, has psychological problems. Or he's, or he's a dirtbag. He's lying. Or he's Lord. That's the only option he gives. If Jesus is in charge, then I'm not. You ever come to that realization? Is Jesus in charge of your life? I face that question daily. When you come to any circumstance, you have to reevaluate. Am I going to let Jesus be in charge? When you go to do your taxes, are you going to let Jesus be in charge? When you face a hard circumstance, are you going to let Jesus be in charge? Yeah, this is a Pharisee thing, right? No, this is a us thing, right? And so Jesus goes even further and he says, no, I'm working for the Father. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you, you may marvel. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Right? So, so there's this consensus around the Jewish people. They argued about a lot of things, but there was this consensus about at least a few things and one of them was that only god there's certain things in life there's certain things in the world that only god can do and they would have argued about the resurrection but certainly if anybody could raise anybody from the dead only god could do that jewish people would have said that if you could raise someone from the dead only god can do that that's one thing the second thing is this only god has ultimate judgment only God is ultimately the judge. That's how they would have believed. What does Jesus say in this passage? He says, the Father has given me authority to judge and authority to rise from the dead. What is he saying? How would they have interpreted this? Jesus is saying he's God. Again, he is not just a good person at this point. They don't have that option. He, we're either going to follow this guy or we're going to crucify him. We have no other option because of the things that he's saying. 
Jesus also contrasts two other things in this passage. The first one is their view of the Sabbath versus his view of the Sabbath. Their view of the Sabbath Sabbath is that it was a specific set of rules that we, the Jewish people, had to follow. That's how the Jewish people, it's a specific set of rules that we have to follow. Literally, they had 29 rules. You couldn't walk a thousand yards from your house. That was one of the rules. And so how do they get around it? They get around it by they go 999 yards and then they would set up like a basically like a refrigerator. And the day before they would put some food in there. And now it was a new place that you lived. So you could walk 999 yards and, and now you have a new one. Now you can walk another thousand yards. You do that enough, you could go anywhere. It's a loophole in the Sabbath. That's how they thought. That's how they exercised it. They still do that today. You go to Israel, and they have two elevators, one for the Gentiles, one for the Jews. The Jewish elevator on the Sabbath, it stops at every single floor. Why? Because it's wrong to push the button. Can't push the button on the Sabbath, so you have to go on this one. What do the Jewish people there do? They wait till a Gentile goes to the other elevator. They let them sin by pushing the button. They walk in with them, and they tell them what floor. Can you push that button for me? How foolish is that? Is that God's intention for the Sabbath? Jesus has a different idea of what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a tool, is a tool to draw near to God. The Sabbath is supposed to be a tool to draw near to God. And Jesus in this story is drawing this guy. He's trying to draw this guy to God. He's literally being the Sabbath. And they're saying, why are you doing work on the Sabbath? No, you don't understand even what the Sabbath is. I'm drawing people to myself. I'm drawing people to God. That's why I came. I am the Sabbath, but they don't get it. And their approach to ministry, remember, they're acting like sheriffs. They think the rules are the most important. Jesus believes that people are the most important. I'm helping this person. Jesus sees, this guy just got healed, that's great. They don't see that. They give him a jaywalking ticket. They don't get it, right? A different approach to ministry. Well, what can we learn about if we want to be, if we want to say Jesus is in control, we want to say Jesus is in control of my life. The next thing we're going to say is, God, Jesus, use me. I want to be used by you, God. That would be the next step. What can we learn from Jesus about having an approach to ministry like this? The first thing is this. The way to be great is to be humble. The way to be great is to be humble. The, the Pharisees, they, they contradict this. They aren't humble. They aren't humble. And so they miss the beauty of who Jesus is. Because they're stuck in their pride and their rules. The way to be great is to be humble. That sounds good, right? Anybody find that to be easy in your life? It's hard to be humble. If you think you're humble, boom, you just got busted. Be humble then. Be humble about your humbleness, right? To be humble is to say, I'm not in charge. God is in charge, is to say, I'm the least, I want to do what God wants, is to say, my life doesn't have to be perfect as long as it's, I'm in God's will, right? Being, being humble is when the Israelites are walking through uh, the, the wilderness and they're complaining about God, that's pride, when they realize, no, God has done so much for us, that's humility. Greatness comes from being humble. Jesus is humble. He comes from heaven to earth, becomes a human. He lives the human life, the human struggle. And not only that, in this passage, he goes like this. He goes, look, I'm submitting to the Father. I'm, submi- I'm God and I'm submitting to the Father. 
That's an act of humility that we need to follow. Are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to the Father? Are you submitted to God's word? So the way to be great is to be humble. The next thing is this. God loves to give away ministry. Another way of saying that is this. God loves to use people. Do you know how profound that is? If you think about it, God loves to use people. The only type of people there are are imperfect people and unqualified people. And God loves to use people. It just seems like it would be so much easier for God to do God's work without us. We don't, doesn't it seem like we would get in the way? If you look at the church, don't we get in the way? But God loves to use people. He loves to give away ministry. He says, my father has given me some things to do. He's given me authority. But what is Jesus doing with that authority? He's pointing people to God. What are you doing with the the, the gifts and talents that God's given you? That's the question. What are you doing with all that God's given you? God's given you so much. And he wants you to use it for his glory. Because God used humble people who, who, who put others first. God uses humble people who put God first. God loves to give away ministry. And he gives his ministry to Jesus, and Jesus carries it out perfectly. And then we see this. Our work, the work that we do for God, is supposed to be worship. The work that, I'm excited too. The work that we're supposed to do is worship, not musical worship, unless that's your gift, and you get like like Buck and Tim, maybe, and, and, and the dance team, Musical worship and dance worship, that's one form of worship. There's lots of forms of worship. Anything you do because you're radically in love with Jesus, anything you do because you're submitted to Jesus, anything you do because you're passionate about Jesus, when your life gets stirred up and caught up with a love for God and a desire to do His will and a desire to love and serve people, that's worship. That is how we're supposed to live our lives, Jesus is saying. If you, if you honored God, you would honor me. And look at what I'm doing. I'm honoring God. And AKA, live for the glory of God, he's saying. Live lives of worship. It's been said many times, but it's so profound we could say it one more time. We don't work. We don't work in order to earn God's love, right? We don't work in order to earn God's love or to earn salvation because we're loved. Because we're saved. We do what we do. It's an act of worship. That's what it says in Romans 12, right? In view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. Whatever you do, that's the way that it's supposed to be. A.W. Tozer once said it like this. He said, we make a huge mistake. We take new Christians and we teach them how to work. We teach them what to do next. We teach them what, this is what you got to do. He says, that's a mistake. First, teach them what worship is. And let them learn to work out of their worship. Anything less, we've become a Pharisee. Where rules matter most. Rather than pleasing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, serving others, people are more important than all of those things. When it's an act of worship. It's a motive. It's why you do what you do. Lastly, we have the truth about judgment, I'm calling it. 
the truth about judgment. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here Jesus does some amazing theological work. He gives us a theology of resurrection. And he gives us a theology of the kingdom of God. In this passage he says, here's how resurrection works and here's how the kingdom of God works. The resurrection, the resurrection works like this. Jesus has been given authority to decide who is raised from the dead. And he says this about the kingdom. You, in, in Colossians, Paul says it like this. The way that it works is you get, you, get, uh, you get transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Or as he says in the end of this passage, the resurrection of life as opposed to the resurrection of judgment. This is language about what the kingdom of God looks like. How do you enter into the kingdom of God? And what is the kingdom of God? And what does this look like? You have to be raised into the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, he goes, you must be born again. In in essence, it looks like this. Those who are spiritually dead, you're alive. You're a zombie. You're a spiritual zombie. You're alive. You talk, you walk, you, you live, but you're not alive spiritually because spiritual life, biblically, is to have a relationship with God. And he says, those who are spiritually dead, Jesus has been given the authority to bring them to life, to give them eternal life, to give them life. That's what he says in verse 24. He goes this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's there's two aspects that we see in the Bible about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has an already and it has a not yet. Some people confuse that and they think our job is to usher in the kingdom of God now. No, our job is to live in the kingdom of God and to proclaim the gospel now in the already, right? The already part, he goes, a time is coming and is now here that those who are are spiritually dead will become spiritually alive. How does that work? It works when when you get a relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. Now you're spiritually alive. That's what he's saying. That's the already. And now you're in the kingdom of God. Is it perfect yet? No, we still struggle. That's the already. And the kingdom of God has an already part. When we're in the already part, we have a job, right? To to spread the gospel and make disciples. But there's more. The kingdom of God has an already, but it also has a not yet. A soon coming. When Jesus will come back. And he will raise us to a final eternal heaven. Where? He, he says that later in 28 and 29. He says, the people, there'll be a time is coming that hasn't come yet when Jesus will call those who are in the tombs and they will be rise, right? What does this mean? This means if, 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 if you pass away now and, and, you're, and you're, you have life here, you, you don't go in your tomb. It's just saying those who have died. You go to be present with the Lord. That's what it says. To be absent with the body to be present with the Lord. If you have a, a, a loved one who has passed away, yeah, they're present with the Lord. But there's still a not yet. 
There's a time coming when Jesus will come back. And he'll take the quick and the dead, it says, right? He'll take those who are still alive. And they'll be caught up with those who have died and have been with God. And they're going to go to a final resting place, a final heaven, an eternal heaven. That's the, that's the theology of the kingdom of God that he's giving here. And he's given another uh, uh, theological thing, the, the theology of judgment. The theology, the theology of judgment is this. Don't we have this question today? You can't judge me. You ever heard that? Don't judge people, right? Well, how does this work? Jesus, in essence, is saying he has final authority to judge. He's the judge. Jesus is the judge. How does this play out? How does this play out? The Jewish leaders think that they're in charge. In essence, they think they're the king. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm the ruler. I'm in charge. God's made me in charge. But the Jewish people think they're in charge. What about us? Do we live like we're in charge? Or have we made Jesus Lord, King, right? And not only that, these Jewish people think they're the judge. That's why they're rebuking Jesus. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm the final judge. What about you? Here's some thoughts. And we can have Bucky come back up. Here's some final thoughts in your notes. People want justice. Is that true? People want justice. In our world, right, we have human trafficking. We want justice. Any, we want to right the wrongs. We want justice. But here's the thing. People want justice, but they don't want a judge. We want justice, but we don't want a judge. People want the world to be right, but we don't want a righteous ruler. In essence, what are we saying? It's an argument over who's in charge. We want to say, I want there to be justice, and I want everyone to do what I say is right. What I see is right. But where do we, where do we get conflict? with people? Two people have different views of what justice is. People don't like it when you go, no, God doesn't agree with your view of justice. No, now you're intolerant. Right? Now we, now we want to crucify Jesus when we, when we come to that point. Because people want a right world without a righteous ruler but here's ultimately the most important question is this if jesus is the king if jesus is lord and savior then that means we're going to follow jesus and following jesus means becoming more like jesus as we prepare for worship i would ask you this question what what right now in your life in your heart, in your circumstances, what do you need to submit to Jesus with? What do you need to let God be in control of that you're desperately trying to be in control of? What anxiety do you hold on to because you're in charge, you're in control? What do you need to lay at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I need you to take this over. I can't handle it. Or what sin, what sin in your life is holding you back? And you avoid really intimacy with God because, because of this issue in your life, this struggle that you have. What do you need to do to lay that down at Jesus' feet and say, I surrender. Jesus, you're the king. The last argument we see here is Jesus says something, or, or John points out something, he goes, and, and, 
and, uh, and come out. He says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's kind of a harsh saying, right? What are you trying to say? Is he, is he saying that if, you do, if you're a good person, you get to go to heaven? And if you're not, you go to hell? Is that what he's saying? It almost seems like it is, and that's how they might have interpreted it. It's supposed to lead you to this question. When it says good people get to go to heaven, we're supposed to stop and go, well, then how can we be good? And we're supposed to realize we cannot on our own. It's supposed, this is supposed to drive you to Jesus. This is supposed to drive you to your need for Jesus. You cannot be good on your own. You need Jesus. Will you surrender to Jesus? Will you surrender to him as Savior? Because we need a Savior. And if you surrender to him as Savior, will you surrender to him as Lord? God, you're in control of my life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for these gospel accounts where we can see who Jesus is. And we are confronted with this tension of we can't, you're not just a good guy. You're either Lord and Master or you're, or you're way less. God, we want to we wanna see that you are Lord, that you are Master. And we want our lives to fall into accord with that truth. May, we, may you help us right now to, sick, to set aside anything that we need to set aside to make you master. May our aim be to become more like Jesus. May our aim be to be in love with you, Jesus. Would you help us to know how much you love us? You don't see our sin and, and desire to condemn us. You see our sin, and that is why you came, to die on a cross, and you desire to free us. May we find freedom today in you. In Jesus' name.